Welcome to Oncology Onward, Conversations with Innovators and Changemakers in Cancer Care, a new quarterly podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Maggie Shaw, Senior Editor at the American Journal of Managed Care. On this episode of Oncology Onward, Dr. Deborah Pat, Executive Vice President of Policy and Strategic Initiatives and Director of Public Policy at Texas Oncology, joins co-hosts Dr. Emilana Vicky and Dr. Steven Schleicher for a jam-packed discussion that touches on topics that have never been more timely in the oncology space. The economics behind the current drug shortage, the relationship between pharmacy benefits managers and 340B discounts, and the Inflation Reduction Act. Welcome to episode two of Oncology Onward with Emilina Vicky and myself, and could not be happier today about our guest, who I consider a friend and mentor of mine, Dr. Deborah Pat down at Texas Oncology. I would let her introduce herself, or I would like read something, but it would be 10 minutes for me to go through all her kind of accomplishments. So I want to give my version of this is Dr. Pat's one of the reasons I'm in my current job. When I was a fellow back at Stone Kettering and thought that the only career opportunity there was was in traditional academics. I was seeing Deborah Pat in front of Congress testifying, saw that she'd be in an MD Anderson, led, I think at that point, like analytics technology for all of US oncology, had, was a breast cancer specialist and a leader at Texas Oncology, which is the biggest oncology practice in the world, I believe, definitely the country. Uh, she's a policy expert, a physician leader, and a breast cancer expert. She's probably the only person that's ever been on the board of both ASCO and COA, so really represents the entire breadth of oncology care across the country. And we still talk probably once a weekend. I get to learn from her. So, Deborah, we are so excited to have you here. Um, so thank you. I'm so grateful to be here. And I'll say that, um, you know, it's an amazing time to be an oncologist, right, where we have been able to see this transformation of cancer care, where patients who used to die of their disease frequently now can live with a chronic disease on their terms where they live their own lives. And that's amazing. And so I respect and admire all the people that contribute to that mission. But I look at you all as the folks that help us continue to move it forward. So I think this title of the podcast, Oncology Onward, is the right thing because there has to be a critical mass of folks that thinks is our is our healthcare policy and the way in which we're delivering medicine with the tools that we have in alignment with continued progress and how do we continue to move forward? So I love it. I'm grateful to be here. Absolutely. Emily, I'm going to let you kick it off. All right, great. So Dr. Pat, thank you so much for being here. You are an inspiration for all of us in oncology. As someone who's only been in academics, I have admired you immensely for the major impact you've made across the spectrum of oncology care. Now, top of mind in DC, in our clinics, is the drug shortage. It's been such a problem for us to be able to care for our patients, give them the highest quality care. I would love it if you could just have a conversation with us about what are the economics that have made this a problem? How do we fix it now? And how do we prevent it from happening in the future? It's a great question, Emmeline, and I'll say because this is a problem we're facing now, it's not a new problem, and it's not a problem that's going away, because if we don't change the fundamental nature of the root causes of the problem, 
we can expect it to continue. And we see a lot of signs of that. So, um, so you know, is there a problem today? Absolutely. Um, so there are eight drugs on the critical shortage list. Probably the most critical are the platinum salts, salt, cisplatin and carboplatin. Um, at, at this very moment, uh, many of us are having to really give guidance around rationing. Uh, and I'll say kudos to NCCN and ASCO that have um, published guidelines on how to ration appropriately. And SGO has been very good, Emily, and specifically calling out the gynoc field. Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but, but I'll say that we would like to be in a position where we don't have to ration $10 drugs when we use drugs that are multiple thousands of dollars to serve patients. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, and so how do we do things differently? Well, let's look back historically to what got us here. Um, so if you look in the generic drug market, we know that over time, there's been tremendous erosion of average sales price because um, these drugs are purchased at somewhat of a discount. And then there's rebates that happen after the initial transaction that uh, six months later decrease average sales price. So the average sales price continues to erode over time where these drugs, um, there, there's little financial incentive to go into the generic drug business. Um, and so you have a few manufacturers that are um, taking drugs that were the, the critical components, the, the APIs or the components that make up the drug sometimes have different manufacturers. But um, it's not like there's an abundance and competition to get into this space in the generic drug manufacturing because there's no financial incentive. And so if you have one particular plant that gets into trouble, um, uh, either with the FDA or some sort of catastrophe, I heard there was a tornado yesterday, um, uh, you know, then, uh, then you're in a whole lot of trouble because there's not a lot of redundancy despite the fact that these drugs are incredibly cheap. There's just not a financial incentive. And so said simply, the erosion of average sales price over time causes instability in the drug supply chain because of the single or, or few source manufacturers even with regards to the components. And so I would say, in my opinion, this is fundamentally an issue of drug pricing that leads to the instability. And so it's gonna continue. Uh, and, uh, and so what could be done about it? So I would say, I think that a couple of things could be done around it. You know, first and foremost, I think that you need to make sure that the price the price is right. You know, um, either you have to have some other mechanism to anchor on wholesale acquisition cost or WAC um, to anchor on wholesale acquisition cost. That that would be something that would stabilize the generic supply chain, or you could have an add-on fee uh, for um, for generics um, to incentivize other manufacturers to come into the market. Um, Julie Graylow did a really nice job uh, from ASCO of testifying, as did Ted Ocon from COA, about what to do about these things. I think that they discussed the price. They discussed um, uh, they discussed uh, having uh, um, stockpiles, uh, national stockpiles, um, al alert systems. All of those things could be contributors. But I do think that fundamentally, at its core, this is an issue of we need to incentivize manufacturers to go into the generic drug business so we continue, can, can continue to have very effective and inexpensive drugs for the patients we serve. Otherwise, you have patients that won't achieve those miraculous cures that, um, that we talked about initially. Um, and then as, as we looked back and look at our root causes, we have to look forward. I think you can see the same thing 
in the erosion of average sales price for the biosimilars. You know, we were very excited to see how biosimilars disrupted the market. We've had ample adoption of biosimilar use, um, but we've seen that the ASP has eroded over time. You know, even just looking in the distant past, more than 25%, you know, it, this is a risk for biosimilars. It's a risk for other drugs going into the generic market. And, you know, the, the, the looming implementation of the um, IRA or Inflation Reduction Act and how it impacts drug prices would further exacerbate this problem. And so I would say at its core, in my opinion, fundamentally, this needs an economic fix. Stephen, so, what do you think? I, well, it's two, two questions, one for the group. Because I, the newer, I didn't, I was in the post WAC world where ASP is all I know. Can you just, just as a small bit, I think it's educational for a lot of the audience because this drives so much of the oncology market. WAC versus ASP, first of all. And then I want to dig into the IRA a little bit. And then this is a nice fall. And eventually we're talking about prices and then PBMs, the elephant in the room that's often not part of these discussions. Um, so yeah, lots of good. So, um, so wholesale acquisition, you know, the, the reason why average sales prices eroded so much really is because of the um, post hoc transactions, right? The things that happen after, um, because you might get, um, you might have rebates that occur at some point post transaction and they don't hit average sales price at that moment, but they reduce average sales price at six months down the line. So that doesn't happen with wholesale acquisition costs. And so you might have rebate structures and other phenomenon that then don't erode that price structure over time. And so if you use something like wholesale acquisition cost, it provides more stability, um, uh, for a drug's pricing structure. And so continues to offer, incentives to go into production. So do you think Perfect. there could be a mechanism to have whack pricing for generics and not, you know, branded? Is that- Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, I'm more into, I, 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 because I'm not married to one particular solution, merely that there requires some kind of economic solution, that's what I would propose. And so I think you could do it in a number of ways, either um, uh, anchor to wholesale acquisition cost or you could have an add-on fee for generics. Either of those would permit financial incentives for um, manufacturers to go into generic drug manufacturing that would stabilize the supply chain. And so it just needs an infusion of capital in some way that serves as a financial incentive to let the economics work. Um, but there's probably a number of ways you could do it. And you're right, Deborah. big picture, we can't ignore economics in a system. Like as a physician, our goal is to take care of the patient in front of us independent of thing about economics, but the system doesn't work unless everybody has economic incentive outside of the physician patient encounter to make sure everything works together. Right. They all have to be aligned and they're clear. So IRA obviously is looking at a different group of drugs than the generics we're having the shortage of, but it's same, you know, big principle, the price of drugs we all know is a huge problem. We want to like respect that and financial toxicity. I'm I know that's your passion is a big problem as well yet not have any unintended consequences of trying to regulate prices as well. Um, and then again, PBMs are always in the background of all this. Can you, Deborah, big, your thoughts. And again, it's great that you see, you know, you have your own thoughts. You saw in text oncology, you guys have a huge kind of policy group. And then you're so plugged in with COA and ASCO, but kind of what are your thoughts on IROA? What are you hearing about potential challenges with it or potential benefits of at least they got some of this right? Yeah, um, so I should stipulate that like all views are my own. Yeah, <laughs> I, as I was asking the question, I was like, 
I speak on behalf of no one else. All views are my own. But um, uh, so the IRA, um, it's interesting, uh, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act that is like the biggest patent reform piece of legislation without ever mentioning patents. It's fascinating to me. I think there are some good things, um, you know, to the point of financial toxicity, trying to make sure that you're capping a reasonable amount of patient out-of-pocket costs is important. Fundamentally, we want patients to have access to cancer care. If patients don't have access to um, the best cutting edge cancer care, um, it's not in their interest. Um, you know, they don't get to benefit from these miraculous discoveries that have been transformational in our ecosystem. And so, um, so the IRA did establish um, a capped out-of-pocket cost uh, for patients in the Part D plans or when they receive um, orals, and that's really meaningful. So kudos to them for that action. I think I think it matters. Um, what I think is problematic about um, IRA is how it is dealing with the issue of, um, of patent law, um, because um, it really stipulates that um, when a, uh, a drug comes out and has a, a certain uh, particular indication uh, as an innovator product, that it has a, a certain timeline without the opportunity for add-ons for additional um, protection of, um, of their patent or their brand as an innovator product. And then they have to sort of um, have a negotiated rate and go into, um, and, and ultimately are quicker to sort of go into the generic space. So there are multiple aspects of that that are problematic. I will say um, the negotiated rate, uh, I think nobody dislikes the idea of negotiation, right? I think that it's reasonable for payers to be able to negotiate, but um, when Medicare is negotiating on uh, uh, for cost and the penalty is a tax penalty that is cost prohibitive for the manufacturers to continue to be in that space, then that's not a negotiation. And so, you know, constitutionally, we don't believe that price fixing is constitutional. And so, um, so I think that that's gonna be a problem that's challenged. And you've already seen lawsuits filed um, about the lack of constitutionality um, about what is perceived as price fixing. So I do think that's sort of inherently problematic. Um, aside from the fact that there's this legal issue, I, I don't think it's in the best interest of patients um, to not have incentives for follow-on indications. So when one drug goes out into the market, it gets an indication, you know, um, the patent generally can be extended whenever it has follow-on indications for other things. Like say you get approval first in patients with metastatic lung cancer, and then you seek approval for patients with adjuvant. Like has how many approvals now? Yeah, right. Um, in, in adjuvant lung, and then uh, and then you seek an approval for breast cancer, and then you see, seek an approval in you know Merkel cell carcinoma, right? Something really rare. Well, if you um, if you first seek approval in lung uh, because it gets you out into the market, you'll never invest the money in research for those follow-on indications if there's not a return on investment to do that. So you'll never seek those subsequent follow-on indications that tends to get things like orphan drug approvals, um, like for things like Merkel cell carcinoma and other small diseases. And so it really stunts innovation um, to not be able to have that uh, follow-on indication. Now I'll say the current state of affairs um, has a patent thicket 
um, you know, where you have these follow-on indications that protects um, uh, this, um, this higher reimbursement for innovator products for a longer period of time that's complicated and I would say not always appropriate, right? Because if you're just changing something from a single dose vial um, or vial size, or um, how something is administered. Like, is that really groundbreaking that a patent should be extended? Um, I think that that's problematic. But by removing all aspects of the patent thicket, you offer no financial incentive for follow-on indications. And that limits manufacturers' investments and in research um, to demonstrate efficacy um, that allows us to bring these amazing cutting edge treatments to cancer care. So, you know, look back to immuno-oncology, right? When, um, when the immuno-oncology drugs were first approved, right? They were first approved, you know, in melanoma. So we got to use them in melanoma. Well, what if we only got to use them in melanoma? I have a question. This is a, this is a, a, a challenge to this. Do you think it might expedite innovation rather than completely eliminate it for these add-ons? Do it quicker, don't wait as long? You know, um, uh, I like that idea, but no, because, you, know, because you, you still have to wait for patients to have an outcome, right? And that it's is- really, Like a curative, that takes a long time. It takes a long time. And That's so the investment in research takes a long time and the time from first approval, you're on a clock. And so you don't get subsequent approvals because you're uh, on a clock if it takes too long to approve. And I think that's biased to um, uh, a lot of research for people to say, okay, maybe this drug will work in this space, but if it takes 20 years to show it, that's not gonna be helpful to us. So let's you know, enrich for a high risk cohort of folks that will show us the difference faster um, that will lead to approval. And so, you know, there's, there's um, uh, trying to figure out sort of the best way to show efficacy, you know, when possible. Um, so no, I don't think so. In fact, it's a great, I've never heard that. So first of all, Deborah, this is the first time I've really kind of heard the kind of follow on indication patent yeah, perspective. And Emily, I haven't heard the rush to one of, to kind of hit both those points, especially the low volume, like the orphan indications, you can imagine very little incentive for that. If I got call it nine years or whatever it may be, I'm going to go quick response rates or focus on like third line palliative. I don't need the higher, I don't need as high a bar, try to move it up. Curative takes a long time. Orphan, I'm not going to get the volume gain for that. I can see these incentives changing a lot and almost creating, again, another way of disparities of care based off, am I in a group that has a very, you know, high prevalence disease where there's incentive to do it versus a small. Right, but that's not something that should, that should completely eliminate the reform, right? That's something that you can have other policies like set up quasi markets to incentivize while also reining in on the cost potentially. So I don't know, I'm a little bit, I'm in the middle, I think. I don't, I don't know if I am completely with you guys. I think there can be some benefits, but I definitely hear the concern. And I think time, if this ends up going through, it will all play out and we'll see. But I think there may be some hidden benefits, some silver lining. Well, am I on that point? There could be definitely benefits. I think the key is what negotiated price will actually mean. You know, what, what is the discussion there and how that decision is made? Because we don't have a lot of clarity on that. I'm just trying um, to be devil's advocate so that it's interesting, by the way. Um, uh, well, <laughs> well, I'll say that um, I don't want to 
dismiss the important aspect of we need to make cancer care affordable. We do. Cancer care is the biggest cost for any payer. The age distribution of the population is changing. Like, let's look at the 20 year lens. The age distribution of the population is changing. We are going to see a lot more cancer because cancer at its core is fundamentally related to aging, um, you know, not always in old people, but fundamentally related to aging. And so as our aging population grows, cancer grows exponentially. We are going to see more of this. More people are surviving. Thank God. We have to be able to manage it in a way that's sustainable. And so we have to come to this issue of how do we control costs? But right now we have all these artificial mechanisms, I feel like, that are not in alignment, that um, are trying to use blunt instruments to control costs that could do things like, you know, uh, um, be barriers to innovation, be barriers to care. And we don't want that. We want to uh, try to pave the way for people to get the appropriate cancer care that they need and to pave the way for our researchers to continue to innovate and bring great therapies to the patients we serve. So Deborah, so agree. We're, we're all in a line, Donna. I think you, the balance of reining in costs, if you can, and preserving innovation yeah. and everything's tough. Quick for time standpoint, for PBMs, just because it's people still don't understand it. I think I understand it. And then I hear someone else describe it and I'm like, oh, I, I don't understand what they actually do. On that whole thing, on the pricing piece and the whole list price, net price, copay accumulator issues, all these other things that patients feel big time, how how the donut hole interacts with people, all these things. How would you summarize, you were like the PBM expert on where PBMs come into on how it, how it affects the price of cancer care at the drug side? Um, so I'll say PBMs are complex. Uh, and, uh, and I think that uh, how we are looking at trying to reform uh, how they act today is complex, um, which is why I think transparency and accountability is like a first necessary yeah. step. But I do think that PBMs drive up costs. Um, and here's why. Um, I think that PBMs drive up costs, one, because when they're sending patients medications, the initial send is delayed but then they'll send patients multiple months of medications at a time. And um, uh, I frequently will dose adjust. So, you know, a simple example is in metastatic breast cancer, when we use CDK4-6 inhibitors, we dose adjust by 40% of the time. But um, I saw a patient this week that um, uh, had, I had to dose adjust her and she had three months of a CDK4-6 inhibitor at home. That's like, over $30,000 worth of a medication that there's nothing else for her to do with that. And by state law, it's not like she can send it back to the pharmacy. Um, so uh, so it's really challenging. And I think that drives costs. The other place where it drives costs that I think we have such little insight into is when we look at the medications that are written by your oncologist today and steered to PBMs in their vertically integrated pharmacies, which is variable by practice and by state, but um, in Texas is over 50% is steered. When it's steered, frequently there is a post-transactional adjudication that goes on to see, is the patient ever seen in the hospital? Does the doctor have privileges at the hospital or any affiliation with the hospital? 
is this a 340B patient, which means that they are able to purchase that drug at a 50% reduction in cost, um, sometimes less, right? Sometimes penny pricing, um, but a 50% reduction in cost um, at least. Um, and then uh, when they do that, they split the margin in a commercial plan, split that margin between the hospital system and the PBM. And I, I don't, I'm not privy to those contracts, but um, you think, oh, well, how does that impact drug prices? Because, you know, it's just that the manufacturer is selling the drug at half the cost. Well, if we have manufacturers that are selling over 30% of their goods at a 50% discount, the natural consequence is you will have continued elevation in drug pricing to sustain the discount to this ever-increasing population of folks that are taking a steep discount on drugs. And I would say, in many cases, inappropriately, because it's not being used to serve the population for which the policy was intended. Yeah, that's, that, is, that is a real concern. The whole, the whole 340B interaction with PBMs or pharmacy benefit managers, we haven't actually said the words, and I want to make sure our listeners know pharmacy benefit manager. Um, it, it's a big problem because of the unintended consequences. That money really should be reinvested in those communities, and PBMs are not reinvesting it in the communities. I will say, I, 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 it's, it would be an unfair statement to say that it, it's never going well, so I wouldn't say that because I think there's a high degree of variability in how different institutions are using the 340B program and their funds. Like I'll say here in Texas, um, a great example is Parkland Hospital that you know does a great service to um, underserved populations in the community. They have 340B. You couldn't give them enough 340B money because they just need all of that to serve their patient populations and they're really good actors. But you also have organizations that are benefiting from the 340B program that will not see uninsured patients. Uh, and so uh, as an outpatient oncology center, and I won't name them for the purposes of this podcast, but, um, but so what I'll say- We're all holding ourselves back from me. <laughs> but there's a great degree of variability. And so that's a challenge to appropriate implementation of the policy that I think requires reform in order to keep it in alignment with its original intent. Right, but I think regardless of, of the hospital system's use of 340B funds, it doesn't make any sense for a pharmacy benefit manager- For CVS to take a 25% margin? No, it does not. It, it is, I mean, it just does not make any sense. It's not what the policy was intended to do. It's one of these unintended consequences that you really should correct. Uh, but, you know, there's other ways. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how the Part D drugs fit into this PBM game, because this is something I didn't realize until you shared with me and explained to me that they're also a part of it. Yes. So um, so where it happens is steerage. And so, um, you know, employers are just looking for, you know, the lowest rate possible and um, and uh, PBM say, we'll get you the lowest rate possible in on an individual transaction process that may be true that they get a low rate because they're able to get a low rate because they're purchasing at a 50% discount. But then they, like I said, they split the margin um, uh, with the hospital system in a post-transactional um, uh, uh, reconciliation, which occurs with the top three distributors that all are involved in this reconciliation process. And it's a service, um, but nobody sees it. There's no transparency in it. And so it's really common in the Part D space. And, and I think, again, variable by community. 
but um, we can observe that it's growing because we can observe that the largest market growth segment in 340B is the contract pharmacy relationship. And so if you look over time to what's now, you know, more than $120 billion program, right? The largest market growth segment has been in contract pharmacies. And Emmeline, what happened was um, in PPACA, um, you know, uh, uh, the, um, you know, Affordable Care Act, um, what happened was uh, at that time, there was a change in policy that 340B hospitals didn't just, uh, um, couldn't just contract with a few pharmacies, but they could contract with an innumerable amount of pharmacies. So, you know, you look at any individual market, let's say you have two dominant hospital systems. Um, let's say they both have 340B, hypothetically, speaking about my own market. So they both have 340B and, um, and they contract each with 500 different pharmacies, right? So they have um, all the common PBMs, specialty pharmacies, but also all the remote mom and pop pharmacies because any pharmacy, it makes sense for them to contract with. So then each and every one of these pharmacies, whenever they get a script, they'll say, has the patient been to the hospital? Do they have a medical record number? Well, what cancer patient hasn't been to the hospital ever to get a breast biopsy or a mastectomy or a poor calf placement or their kidney removed or whatever? And does their doctor who's written for it, well, all of we community oncologists have privileges at every community hospital in our area, you know, more or less, because that's where we practice when our patients are in the hospital. So, um, so they're able to then say, this is a 340B patient. So the patient doesn't know the doctor doesn't know. They just know the script has been steered. Um, and, and when the employer sees the bill, they see the bills a little bit less. But the natural consequence globally is that the costs go up because if the manufacturer is selling from 20% to 30% to 40% of their drugs at a 50% discount, the natural um, consequence is to maintain a stable profit margin, they have to raise drug prices. So just for clarity, does half of that margin then go to that hospital, the hospital that really had nothing no, to do? With I, I think that, um, I, again, I'm not privy to the contracts between PBMs and hospital systems, and I would imagine they're variable. Um, uh, but if it's a 50% that has to be shared, I imagine that both of them get a large chunk. And so if you're talking about a drug that's $14,000 a month, you're looking at $7,000 that's being split between the PBM and the hospital system in some way every month. So Deborah, last, this is fascinating, Deborah. I wish we could just continue. I wish, I wish we were over dinner right now. So last thing, cause you're in DC a lot. Um, how much do you see the difference in terms of DCs beginning to understand PBMs and again, I won't say too, I don't know all that, is everything about PBMs bad? Probably not. Do we think there's problems? Absolutely. What's the kind of, have you seen over the last, call it three years, the focus on PBMs, even just from a transparency standpoint um, in DC from you know two years ago to today? I think that there is a lot of heightened interest in committees of jurisdiction. So we certainly see that. You know, you see um, the Federal Trade Commission is very interested in the market power by the vertical integration of the payers, the PBMs, the specialty pharmacies, the clinical enterprise. Um, so the FTC is very interested in that. You see um, uh, 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 Senate Commerce really interested in transparency and accountability. 
you see energy and commerce really interested in things like transparency and accountability. So I think there's a lot of interest in committees of jurisdiction more than there ever has been. And it does make me optimistic for change. The two pieces that I think are barriers to change is one, this is complicated. Like it is complicated 16 chessboard kind of situation, right? Because there's all this stuff that you cannot see. Um, uh, and, uh, and so it's complicated and our elected officials are public servants that generally don't come from healthcare. And so people have to really be in the weeds or have, um, uh, have people on their staff that are in the weeds on this to really get how this globally is impacting drug pricing and the access to cancer care for the patients we serve. Um, so, so it's complicated. Healthcare is complicated, but it's this, this piece is really complicated. The other thing I'll say is that the insurance companies and um, the PBMs that they work with and the hospitals that might benefit from 340B programs broadly are incredibly powerful in the policy process because um, uh, they have sheer numbers and manpower. You know, when we go to meet with folks in DC, there's a handful of us. When the hospitals go or when the PBMs go, there's hundreds of people and um, they're a very powerful enterprise. And so I believe that the first step really is around transparency and accountability, because I think it's hard if you shine a light on this and you understand that there are thousands of dollars going to systems that aren't using this money for the uh, intent um, that, that the legislation was intended, then, then you're more likely to have a growing appetite for change. So I feel like the first piece really is in transparency, but I think there is a lot of appetite, but unfortunately we need to continue to be really engaged in order to facilitate change in some meaningful way for patients. And we as doctors um, are not the best advocates because we're really busy taking care of patients. So it's why I'm grateful for you both um, for being outspoken in this field and really being um, leaders of innovation and change because we'll need that in order for, to provide the next uh, innovations of cancer care to this growing demographic. Awesome. On that note, guys. You've made a very complicated a host of complicated issues, really a lot more simple and digestible. And only you could have done that with PBMs. So thank yep. you for joining us. This was and so that, fun. Let's talk again. Listen, and guys, for anybody listening, whatever your career interests are, Deborah, Dr. Pat is very committed to the future of oncology. So like find her. She's been a mentor to me and Emmeline and others. So um, definitely find her to learn more because as she's kind of showing just from talking, the the world is endless and what we can all accomplish in cancer care. So thank you, Dr. Pat. Thank you. And I look forward to more Oncology Onward podcasts. Yes. We didn't even tell her to say that. <laughs> I love it. For all of us at AJMC.com, thanks for listening. To learn more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.